correcting and admonishing one another. And what greater words could we admonish one another with than to give me the Bible? And I hope tonight, as you are here, that you are hoping to receive God's Word, not my opinions, not my feelings, not my desires, and hopefully not yours. It's real easy to want to be like those that the Bible would describe that have this desire for itching ears. Like those that the prophet would describe, those that would say, give us sweet words. I hope that's not your desire tonight. Tonight our subject is, am I saved? This is one of the most difficult questions a person can ask. And the reason it's difficult is because it's introspective. And I want you to think about that word, introspective. It is the concept that I am looking into me. I am checking me. I am I'm making sure that I have done what God wants me to do and am doing it and will continue to do it. And so I've got to analyze myself. And, you know, we're encouraged to do that in Scripture. You think about one of the main things we do on the Lord's Day is we partake of the Lord's Supper. And you know what we're supposed to do when we're doing that Lord's Supper? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that we're to examine ourselves, not the person next to you. And so tonight, I don't want you thinking about the person next to you. I want you to be thinking about you. I want you to ask yourself the question tonight, am I saved? Now, the word saved is an interesting word. In the, in the Greek, it's sozo. So, and it's this idea of deliverance and protection. Deliverance and protection. We would use the word often preserved. I want you to think about the word preserved. The word preserved is this idea of taking something and keeping it in a state where it doesn't go bad. Am I preserved by God? Am I in a position where I am right with Him and preserved by Him? I want you to go with me to our New Testament. We're going to look, we're going to ask some questions tonight. The first question is, Am I lost? You say, well, I thought the sermon was, am I saved? And I want, I want us to examine this idea of, am I lost, as we examine the idea of, am I saved? Because if I can understand what it means to be lost, then I can understand the full grasp and, and the full breadth of what it means to be saved. Am I lost? Throughout Scripture, you find person after person who is in a lost state. Go with me to Acts chapter 10. A lot of people, they try to determine whether they're in a saved state or a lost state based upon the good things that they have done. Anybody ever heard somebody say, you know, I, I just don't know how they could be lost because, you know, they, they've really been a good person. Anybody ever heard somebody say that? I have. People make the argument that somebody doesn't have to obey the gospel, and we'll discuss what the gospel means in a minute. But they don't have to obey the gospel to be saved because, you know what, they were a good person. How could a how, how could a loving God send this good person to hell? 
Go with me to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house. Now notice how he's described. This is a devout man and he feared God, even his whole house does. He gave much alms to the people. So this guy is a giver. He is a benevolent man. And he prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently, about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming to him and saying to him, Cornelius, and he looked upon him and he said he was afraid. What is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers, your alms, they're come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea, and he shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 11, Peter's going to give us a little insight into this, and he's going to say this as he's recounting this story. He says in verse 13 of Acts 11, he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood by him and said, send to Joppa and call on Simon, whose surname is Peter, just like we read in Acts 10. Now notice this next verse, verse 14. Who shall tell thee words, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Here is a great man. He's doing good things. He's giving. He's prayerful. And he's devout. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Why would the Bible tell us that Peter was going to be given words by which he could tell this man how to be saved if he was already saved. Now the Bible is one of the most organized, and it is the most organized, and the most perfect book that's ever been written. And where I come from, we have a, a saying. Now we, I grew up on a cattle ranch. We called it, we, we'd say, God doesn't lick his calf twice. You know what it means to, for a cow to lick its calf twice? Cow, it's wintertime, a cow gives birth, and that calf's just covered in all that is in, included in birth. And it's cold. The calf's laying on the ground. And that cow immediately, she goes over and starts cleaning that calf off. And she has to clean him real good. You know why? Doesn't it freeze to death laying there? God doesn't have to lick his calf twice. It means God's going to do it right the first time. God's not going to be repetitious unnecessarily. That's why our Bible isn't this thick. God gives us the bare bones necessities that we need so that we can be faithful and righteous before him. And so he gives us the information that's just needed without filling it full of fluff. And so here we have this example of this man that is a good man. And no doubt he certainly probably felt like he was doing what was right. And other people certainly felt the same about him. But was he saved? Why would God say, I'm going to give you Peter words by which you can tell this man how to be saved if he was already saved? Because he was in a lost state. He was in a lost state. Being a good person, being a giving person, being a prayerful person is a good thing. But it's not good enough if you don't obey the gospel. And so here's a man 
who needed to be saved. And so I want you to notice what had to happen for him to know what he needed to do. Who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Here he is in a lost state. He's outside of Christ. He is a, a person that has sin in his life that has not been removed. That's what it means to be lost. Sin that we're going to have to give an account for. Go with me. Hold your hand here, but we're going to go over to the next book, Romans chapter 5. It says in verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be, here we go, saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, when we're in a lost state, listen, we are the enemy of God. James would say friendship with the world is enmity with God, to be an enemy of God. He says, but we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be, here we go, saved by his life. And not only so, we also shall, um, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. The word atonement meaning to make one with God. Sin makes us an enemy of God. To be lost is to be God's enemy. To be someone that God is opposed to. And here it says that Cornelius is going to be given words whereby he may be saved. He and his whole household. And I mean no disrespect. I mean no harm nor ill towards anyone who teaches otherwise. But what they teach in the denominational world today about salvation is just flat wrong. They're teaching a doctrine that says that you can be saved based upon your feelings, based upon your emotions, based upon your actions. That, oh, you know what? You know, I, I, I've been a good person, and that's what I'm talking about when I say actions. I've been a good person. Why would not God save me? Because you've been his enemy. You know, I accepted Jesus into my heart. I believe that Jesus was the Christ. I believe he was the Son of God. I believed it with all my heart. Why wouldn't God save me? Because you still haven't done what God said. He says, I'm going to give you words whereby you may be saved. Now go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to notice verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, wherein ye stand. He, so he's saying, I'm giving you words. What did Peter say? Well, it's told to Peter. You're going to be able to give them words, right? Notice verse 2. By which also ye are saved. He says, I declare unto you the gospel by which you're saved. What is this gospel? Verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. 
He says the words that you're going to be given are the gospel. The gospel message that saves us is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Now, a person that's lost isn't going to accept the gospel. They're going to reject it. They're going to say, I don't want anything to do with that. And their punishment is going to be enmity with God. I want you to go ahead, hold your hand here. We're going to go now to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. It says here in verse 6, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and listen, that obey not the gospel. The lost person is going to have God take vengeance on them how? In flaming fire. And it seems to me, this is the first thing. God. Notice verse 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. People that don't obey the gospel are going to be separated eternally from God in this flaming fire, in a place of vengeance, in a place of eternal punishment and everlasting destruction. They're going to be completely separated from the presence of the Lord, all because they didn't obey the gospel, the death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we can really get an understanding of what it is to be lost, then we can understand that I really want to be saved. And then I can ask the question, Am I? The first question that any person ought to ask is, have I obeyed the gospel? If the person that doesn't obey the gospel is going to have this punishment, and the person that does obey the gospel is going to be the one that receives the words that God has given. Listen, he doesn't say made-up words that man comes up with that he thinks are real intelligent, real smart. He doesn't say, you know, follow your heart. What does he say? Words that not even Peter came up with. Words, I'm going to give you the words, he says, whereby he may say. So these are special words. These are important words. What is it then to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? Go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Some of you were already turning there, and I'm glad. Brethren, we ought to know these things like the back of our hand. When, when your preacher starts preaching and he starts talking about the gospel, you ought to be thinking 1 Corinthians 15. You ought to be thinking about Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. You ought to be thinking about Romans chapter 6. These, these ought to be words that are etched in our memory. So he would start out Romans chapter 6. Now Romans chapter 5, he's had this great discourse on how we are saved and justified by faith. And now... He has to deal with this problem that's taking place in Rome. And there are Christians there that have this mindset that if God's grace is so awesome, and I receive God's grace when I sin and He forgives me, then, well, wouldn't I want to have more grace? So they had this mindset that, well, if I sin more, then God's going to give me grace more, so then shouldn't I sin more? I don't know where you're from, where I'm from. We call that stinking thinking. And so... Paul has to deal with it. He says, what shall we say then? 
chapter 6, verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's talking to Christians. He said, how should we why would we live like that? We're a different kind of people. He says, don't you know, know you not, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? What was the gospel? The death, the burial, and the resurrection. Listen, you're going to ask yourself a question tonight. Am I saved? The first thing you need to ask yourself is, have I obeyed the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection? You're going to say, well, how can I obey a death, a burial, and a resurrection? How can I do that? Paul's going to describe it. He says, don't you know that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. And so now he says that when we are baptized, we are reenacting the gospel. That's the obedience to the gospel, brethren. When we do what Jesus did, listen, can you get up to walk in newness of life if you've never died? Can the old man of sin be put to death if you don't kill him? And so what he gives us here is this divine prescription, words by, whereby we may be saved and obedience to the gospel. And Paul would say in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You want to know what saves you? Obeying the gospel. And so when we do what God says, we can know that we're saved. And so I'm going to ask you a second question. First question I ask, am I lost? Second question is, if I do what the people in the first century did to be saved, and God said that they were saved, can I know that I'm saved? If I do exactly what they did then, right now, and God said that they were saved, well, I know that I'm saved. Absolutely. So that's what they did. Don't believe me? Let's go to the book of Acts. By the way, this wasn't a new concept to those in the first century. People think that baptism was this new thing that just came on. The, the, the concept of baptism was a, a wash. You think about the priests, what would they do before... They would enter into the temple. They had a, a full washing that they had to go through, a ceremonial washing, so that they could be purified, the Old Testament says, before they would enter the temple. And so this wasn't a new concept, this idea of baptism. That's why on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stands before the group of people and he tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, nobody goes, hey, hold on. Hey, uh, what's baptism? It wasn't new. When you Consider what was John the Baptist doing in the wilderness of Judea. What was he doing? He was preaching and baptizing people. Nobody's going, hey, what is this thing? Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're baptizing people. What, what was the purpose? What did they recognize? That this wasn't something that was new, and it wasn't something obscure or weird. You get to Acts chapter 2, and Peter stands before them, and in verse 21, he's going to use a phrase that, we really don't like to talk about in the Lord's church, but we ought to talk a whole lot more about it. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2, and he says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be, here we go, saved. We don't like to talk about this verse because our denomination will never be using it all the time. 
But you put it in its place, and it's easy to deal with. Matter of fact, it's beautiful to deal with. Remember the man named Saul that had been persecuting the church? He was told to do what? Call on the name of the Lord. Doing what? In what act? He's told to, to call upon the name of the Lord by being baptized. And so you have this. And then you, you get to verse 38, and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. What did they do? To obey the gospel. They were baptized. That's what they did in the first century. Verse 47, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily should, should be saved. How were these people being saved? Were, were there one group of Christians over here that were um, accepting Jesus into their heart? And then you got another group over here that's taking their babies and baptizing them. And then you got this other group over here, and they're real fanatical. They were saying people had to be baptized for remission of their sins. And then, you, you know, is that what was happening? No, you had all of these people being of the same mind and the same judgment, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, doing the same thing. But it doesn't stop. Go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. The people, verse 4, are scattered abroad because of the persecution. And so they go and preach Christ to them. And in verse 12, Philip, he goes to Samaria and he preaches. And it says, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were, they went down to the sinner's altar got down on their knees and they prayed real hard that they would receive the Holy Spirit and that they would be able to speak. Is that, what, is that what happened? No. It says, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. You keep going in Acts chapter 8. You're going to come to, the, to this man that he is called an Ethiopian eunuch. He is a nobleman from Ethiopia. And he is reading in his Bible, Isaiah chapter 48, and he's in a chariot, and he's got the scroll out, and he is wishing he could understand it. And God's Spirit sends Philip over to the chariot, and he begins by asking him this question, do you understand what you read? And he doesn't. He said, man, how can I except some man show me? And so he begins at the same verse, and he showed unto him Jesus. And just by happenstance, they came along their way, and there was some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. I believe in Jesus, and I'm already saved, so I should be baptized. That's not what he said. What does he say? Here's water. What hinders me? What's keeping me from doing this? Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. They went both down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. I thought I was really preaching hard one time. I was in Africa. I was in a village called the Masashi. And I had been preaching for about an hour and a half on baptism. Now, you're thinking an hour and a half. They, they like three, four-hour sermons. So we had just begun. And uh, we took a break. We had a little question and answer session. I thought I was really doing good. And this man 
raised his hand and he said, I've got a question. He goes, what's baptism? Man, I've been preaching an hour and a half on baptism. You don't know what baptism is? And I've done the, the mistake that we often make is not realizing that not everybody knows the term baptism. So I took him here. And I said, I want you to see what baptism is. He goes down with him into the water. And then they had to come up out of the water. See, they were used to hearing about infant baptism. What I kept describing was completely obscure to them. They were used to this idea of taking a baby and holding a little water over their head and drizzling it. And that was baptism to them. So here we get to Acts chapter 8. And all of a sudden, hey, wait, this is something different. Baptism is, is to go down. Now, remember, what's the gospel? A death, a burial. You bury somebody with their hands sticking out, their legs sticking out, walking through the cemetery. You walk through the cemetery, Memorial Day weekend, and you go out there and you're putting your flowers out, you're walking along, and there's a hand. What would you say? Somebody hasn't buried them all the way, right? They're not completely buried. We understand that concept. Went to baptize a young man at a church camp that I would never recommend someone go to. Um, we had part ways with them years and years ago. While we were there, I, one night a young man came to me. He studied. He wanted to be baptized. He called his parents. Got permission. Let's go baptize him. And we had a horse trough there, and I was baptizing him in it. Took him down. His leg came out. Came out. And I said, Hey, listen, we got to do this again, but we. We gotta make sure your leg stays down. We're gonna make sure you completely immersed. Immersed. This other guy that was there, unfortunately from one of our illustrious preaching schools of our brotherhood that FSW is from. I'm not gonna say where it's at, but it's really close to Oklahoma City. And um, he said, uh, you know, you really don't you don't need to worry about that. God's grace will cover it. Brethren, if God says it's going to be a burial, what's it got to be? It's a burial. And if it doesn't matter, then why not sprinkle them? And if, and if it doesn't matter, why sprinkle them at all? He says it's a burial. And so he goes down into the water, and he baptized him, and they came up out of the water. That's what a baptism is. It's a burial. So here Philip does this. You can, you can look at Acts chapter 9. And you, the next thing you see is this man named Saul. And he is going to be able to see the Lord on the road to Damascus there. And he is going to be told what he has to do. And he's not told to accept Jesus into his heart. He is told words by which he could be saved. And I want you to listen to what the text says here. In chapter 9 and verse 10, it says, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Lord, behold, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Arise, go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire the house of Judas, one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayed, and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming and put at this hand on him that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, said, Lord, 
I have heard how many of this man, how much evil is done to the saints of Jerusalem, and he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all them that call upon your name. The Lord said unto him, Go your, go your way. He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and children of Israel, and I will show him how much things, great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went, entered into his house, putting his hands on him. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared to thee in the way he has sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. Every account of someone you read in your New Testament being saved was baptized. Not a one. Do you receive any other way? Go with me to, well, we just looked at Acts chapter 10 a while ago. Let's go to Acts chapter 16. We're just going to kind of speed along here, put it in fast forward. Acts chapter 16. In verse 14 it says, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things, listen, which were spoken. It wasn't something she felt. This wasn't something that somebody else told her from their own opinion. It was spoken of who? Paul. Inspired man. And when she was but Acts chapter 16 you go later into the chapter find in verse 25 Paul and Silas are in prison they're singing praises the other prisoners would hear them verse 26 there was this great earthquake and the foundation of the prison was shaken immediately all the doors were opened everybody's bands were loosed and the keeper of the prison he woke out of his sleep and he saw that the prison doors were open he drew out a sword and he was going to kill himself Paul cried to him, don't do yourself harm, we're all here. Then he called for a light, and he sprang in, he came trembling, and he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized. Don't overlook this passage. There's a couple of absolutely paramount things. He asked, what must I do to be saved? Now, their response initially is, you believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What a sentence. You and your whole house. He says, you'll believe on Jesus. Now, if you stop there, you can come to the conclusion that the denominations have been coming to for years. That's all you got to do. What does he do with them? He spake unto them, the word of the Lord. And to all that were in the house, and he took them the same hour, washed their stripes, and he was baptized. Why would he be baptized? Was it because he was already saved? He did it so that he could be saved. This, this teaching that you're baptized because you're already saved has got to be one of the most idiotic, I don't mean me, but it's got to be one of the most idiotic teachings out there. Why would you do something for salvation, it's not necessary for salvation. I don't get it. What's the purpose? Well, here's their answer. We all know it. It's an outward showing of an inward faith. Find me a verse on that. Find one. There's not. So you ask the question, 
Am I saved? If I do what they did then, God said that they were saved. If I do it now, will not God say that I'm saved also? He gave them words whereby they may be saved. He speaks to him the word of the Lord. Verse 32. He gives the word to um, Ananias. And what does he do? He preaches it to him and he is baptized. Every account of someone receiving the word of the Lord, it comes from God and every one of them involved being baptized. Catch the second part. For the remission of their sins. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, repent and be baptized, what? For the remission of sins. But there's danger here. We've got a lot of our brethren someone's baptized for the remission of our sins means that they're saved. That sounds true. That sounds good. When I was a boy, we had a horse trough. Big old 500 gallon shock tank. My brothers and I'd go out there swimming after a hard day's work on the farm. And we'd get in that swimming pool and we'd play preach. Anybody else play, play preach? Oh man, preachers are fun. We baptized everything under the sun. We baptized our dog. I'm pretty sure we baptized the chicken one time. We baptized each other I don't know how many times. I ought to be washed as clean as anybody ever been washed. But none of that baptized us. We was doing something, but it didn't have meaning behind it. We'd take each other down truth. We'd say all the words, too. We'd hold our right hand up. I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. Whoosh! And I never got saved. Why? And we all know it. We all know it. You got a five, six-year-old boy out there doing it. We know ain't nobody gets saved out there. Why? Because there wasn't certain things in place. Brethren, there has to be a desire, number one, to obey the gospel. That I'm putting off. I'm putting to death this man. This is a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And I'm putting to death my old man. This old man is dying. And that's why Jesus would describe it to Nicodemus as a new birth. That, that he is going to have to be reborn. Why? Because that old man, he's going to be dead. If you go through the motions, listen, without repentance, without this purpose behind you, confessing. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. Men, to men, that Jesus is the Christ. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch did. For what purpose? What was the intention behind doing all of this? So that you could change who you are. When you go down into that watery grave of baptism, you do not come up the same person. You are coming up a completely new individual eyes of God. You went down full of sin and you come up and you are now walking in newness of life. There is intention there. That's why there is repentance preceding baptism. It's this idea that I am now no longer going to live the way I want to. What does that mean? I want you to go with me. Paul would write about this idea of biblical repentance in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He would describe what repentance looks like. 
And I've said it once this week. I'm going to keep saying I'm going to say it at every gospel meeting, every time I get to preach if I can. Repentance is the ticket. If we can get people to understand repentance, baptism is not going to be a problem. And I want you to listen to what he says in verse 9. Now, Paul has had to scorn the church at Corinth because of their sinfulness, their division, their selfishness. So he's wrote to Christians, but he describes what repentance looks like, and we can get a good picture of it. He says, verse 8, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were for just a season. But now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. Some people, you know, their view of um, repentance is, I'm sorry I got caught. You do that when you were a kid, right? Mom's like, hey, you got to tell him you're sorry. Sorry, you're an idiot. You know, like we do that kind of stuff, right? Sorry, you're caught doing it. That's not what he's talking about. You know, there's, there's a couple kinds of sorries. And he says, I, I'm glad that you sorrowed to, you were moved to repentance. Now, people all the time, I hear, I hear gospel preachers say this, that we need to leave our emotions out of our religion. That's hogwash. Sorrow is an emotion that we need. And we should be deeply moved within our spirit to do something about our sin. He says, "That's what I'm glad you did that. I'm, I'm glad you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow, it works repentance to salvation, not to be repented or regretted of, but the sorrow of the world. Sorry, I got caught. It works death. For behold, this selfsame thing. Now he's going to describe in detail what repentance looks like. That you sorrowed after a godly sort. What? Carefulness. Notice number one. You want to understand repentance, you get this. Number one, repentance is carefulness. My grandpa, he loved to joke with us boys. He'd cut off one of his fingers. They had this nub. We'd be out working in the machine shed or something. He'd go, oh, cut my finger off. What had happened with him is he was working in a combine, got it stuck in some parts, cut it off. But you know, when my grandpa worked on the combine, that thing was turned off. The keys were, were placed in a special part in the shed. Battery was disconnected. You know why? He learned that if you don't do that, you lose a finger. We ought to learn from our mistakes, brother. We ought to learn that if I surround myself with bad people, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to get in trouble. So what am I going to do? I'm going to separate myself from bad people. I'm going to learn that if I drink, I'm going to behold strange women. I'm going to have wounds without cause, Proverbs chapter 23. I'm going to feel like I've been beaten up, and I don't know where it came from. I so I'm going to stay as far away from that as possible. See, I'm going to be careful now. That part of repentance is saying, hey, look, I get it, and I don't want any part of that. I'm going to be careful. No second. He says, yea, what? Clearing of yourself. Paul would write, let him that stole steal no more. 
Let me ask you a question. This is a great debate in our brotherhood. We need to deal with it as well. A man goes to the bank and he steals, say, $10,000. He gets away with it. Goes home, and that night, he's invited by his friend to go hear a gospel sermon. He goes. He's sitting out there in the audience, and he hears a great, compelling gospel sermon, and he wants to be a New Testament Christian. He wants to be saved. He wants to go from the lost state to the saved state. And he comes forward, and the preacher says, well, you got anything you need to repent of? Mind you, he's got $10,000 sitting at his house. He stole. Does he get to keep that money? No. People don't understand this when it comes to marriage, divorce, or remarriage. This is where the rubber meets the road, brethren. This is where it gets hard. Do you get to keep a wife that you should have never had in the first place? What clearing of yourself? See, I, I, I stole this, so I'm going to give it back. You got something to, to fix? You go fix it. That's part of repentance. I'm going to do everything in my power to clear myself of the mess. That's what he says it is. Repentance is a clearing of ourselves. Notice the next one, number three. Yea, what indignation. You ever get mad about sin? The Bible says be angry and sin not. There's a place in our lives for anger, brethren. There's a place for it. We always act like you should never get angry. That's hogwash. Right here, we got a place for anger. Indignation is heated anger. We ought to be mad that Satan ever got us. We ought to be mad that I made those mistakes and I sinned against a God who is perfect and holy and righteous. I ought to be mad about that. He says, what indignation? I'm, oh, why did I do that? That should be our emotion. That's part of repentance. Notice the next one. He says, yea, what? Fear. That's the idea here of if it's hot, like a stove, and you got a little kid, and he goes up to touch it, you say, hey, don't touch it. And finally, that little kid, because that kid, everybody's got their fear. Right? You can tell him a hundred times, don't touch the stove, but what's he going to do? Don't, don't you all look around. <laughs> like, he's going to put his hand up there and do what? Touch it. Why? He didn't have fear for it. Now he's put his hand up there. And shh, ah! next time he walks into the kitchen, stove's over there and he's walking like this. What's happened? He's got a little fear in him now, right? Sometimes fear is one of the greatest tools that we can have. That's why the Proverbs writer would say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. And so we need fear. The next one, he says, what vehement desire. What vehement desire. Part of repentance is now there is a stirring within me. As I said a while ago, people all the time say we shouldn't have emotions in the church. This is, this is an emotion, brethren. Man, I've got a desire. I've got a zeal. I, I, I've warned young people when they obey the gospel that are on fire might say for the Lord. There's going to be some old person comes here that's bitter, grumpy, and sinful. They're going to say, hey, you need to calm down and repent. I know you're a new Christian and you're real excited, but you need to calm down a little. This will pass. 
Shame on us. Shame on us. Part of becoming a Christian should be a vehement desire to serve God with everything I've got. To every person I meet, I want to tell them about Jesus. I want to tell them how I got saved by doing what he said and obeying the gospel. I want to tell them about that. They want to ask me why I'm different now. Hey, why are you different? Why aren't you doing the things you weren't that you were doing before? Why, why, what's so different about you now? Let me tell you about it. They ought to see it. It ought to be a vehement desire that's coming out of me. Next thing he says is what's sealed. I mean, you just keep with the thought, right? Then I'm I am on fire. And the last one. Part of my repentance is revenge. On who? You read Jude. Jude tells us that we're not to get revenge. That the Lord says vengeance is mine. So how am I to get revenge? Let me tell you how. Every time that you resist temptation, you're getting revenge on Satan. Every time. Every time. You're sticking it to Satan right in the teeth. And I don't want to go above and beyond. I'm going to do. I'm going to put in my place, in, in my life, these safeguards in place that are going to help me resist Satan. Why? Because I want to get revenge on. Him. I'm mad at Satan. You ever think about Job? Job had every right to be mad at Satan. You know, we ought to be mad at Satan. You look in our family. We can all look in our family and hate Satan. I don't care who you are, where you're from, how great your family is. We've all got somebody in our family that we're thinking about right now. Satan has gotten his teeth And I want to get revenge on him. Every time I, I take somebody from the lost state to the saved state, guess what I'm doing? I'm getting revenge on Satan. Because I'm a changed that's what repentance is. So, so that's why I say, if I can convince somebody to repent, it's no problem to get them into the baptistry. Why? They're, they're going to be jumping in there. Why? Because they have no desire to be in Satan's realm anymore. They want to serve him. Am I saved? Let me ask you this question. Have you repented? The real question isn't even about baptism. You've done what it takes to sorrow after a godly sorrow, after a godly repentance, or are you living this way? You know, I know the Bible says, here's the line, but don't you think it's okay to be regular? Maybe if I get, like, right here, what about this? Anybody ever uh, play the game in the car with your brother or sister? Maybe I was just a terrible kid. I don't know. Um, the I didn't touch him game. I'm not touching him, Mom. Right? This is what we do with sin all the time. Christians do this all the time with sin. Well, I'm not touching it. You know, my daughter really wants to play the prom. You know, our prom. Meddling. Um, 
you know, our problem's different. They, they really don't have that big of a problem with sin at our problem. Our problem's really with their pastor. And you see the pictures that come out on Facebook of um, the whorish dressing. I don't know of a more benign term. Exposing themselves to the whole world, and you're like, "Oh yeah, it's not that bad." Okay, yeah, you put a bunch of teenagers in a dark room, pump it full of fog where you can't see anything. Let's play music that is talking about sex in every other lyric, and let's get them half naked. I'm sure only good things are going to happen. Christians are like, "Oh yeah, it's I, I'm going to send my kid." Yeah, that seems genius to me. Let's do that. What about the idea of repentance? Repentance says, I want nothing to do with anything that's going to even get me remotely close to sin. Christians are over here going, right? God's calling us to a higher standard, brethren. Repentance is not how close can I get to sin. Repentance is not, well, I think that's a gray area. Listen, if I even remotely were to think, and I don't believe in gray areas, but if, if I were to, I wouldn't want anything to do with them then it automatically is going to become an area that I'm not allowed in. You know why? Because I want to go to heaven that bad. That's what, that's what repentance is. I want to go to heaven so bad, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get as far away from sin as I possibly can. I want you to take in case the Apostle Paul. What did the Apostle Paul have to do? He gave up everything to repent. He was on his way up. We want to call it that. Think about cold turkey. That man, at a moment's notice, spun on his heels and went to serving God. God said, listen, uh, Ananias, this guy's going to be, he's going to suffer for my name. He's going to do it before kings. He's going to do it before people. He's going to suffer great things in my name. What did Paul do? Agabus coming to Paul and he says, Paul the man that goes to Jerusalem and he's all bound up, he says he's going to go like this Spirit told me that you know what Paul does? Head dummy why? Because he believed in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that if he could put it before people like Caesar that they would even obey him read the last chapter of the book of Acts you find that there were Christians in Caesar's own house. Why? The Apostle Paul converted them. Planted congregations all over. Why? Because he had a vehement desire. He had a zeal. He had a clearing of himself that he had to do. Can you imagine the weight that was in Paul's mind every day when he woke up? I can't imagine what it would have been like. Walk into the church. Look in the faces and in the eyes of people who he most likely had terrorized at some point in their life. Had maybe even drugged their husband or their son or their daughter out of their home. Had them killed for being part of the way. I think Paul woke up every day with a zeal that said, i got to clear myself of this. Brethren, we ought to get revenge on Satan. If we can get repentance down, everything else will fall in place. If I can get this down, that I don't want anything to do. Because, see, if I understand how bad it is to be lost, that I am without God, I am without hope, I am an alien, I am a sinner, 
I am an enemy of God. I am in danger of God taking flaming fire and vengeance on my soul, and not just for a little while, in everlasting destruction and punishment. Then I'm going to ask myself if I'm lost, and that's what it's like, how can I become saved? And if I've got to be saved, I've got to repent. And I might need to make some changes in my lesson. I'm afraid that there's a lot of Christians today that never went through the true repentance process. Repentance is essential, friends. If you're here and you've never put on Christ and got knowing what you need to do beforehand, that's not baptism. They knew about the church, the kingdom, Acts 8 12. They knew about Jesus' authority, that he has all authority in heaven and in earth, that he is the one that gives us the words whereby we may be saved. He is the one that gives those things, and we're going to be judged by them, John chapter 12 and verse 48. And so if we know those things, I'm going to now want to become a New Testament Christian and obey him. He has the authority, and it's his church, not mine. I want to be a part of it. Am I saved? Let me ask you this might be sitting here, you were maybe a, a member of a denomination. This is the thing. You know, I was baptized through a denomination. Let me ask you, did you know about the church? You can't be a part of something you didn't even know about. This is common sense. This is plain simple. Did you repent? Did you do it for the purpose of pleasing Him in everything? You cannot be taught wrong. And obey righteousness. This is impossible. So why not, if you have done that, do it right tonight? I don't know about you, but I'm not going to leave my eternal soul's salvation into the hands of doubt. You might say, well, I'm not real sure. Listen, I'm going to make sure. The Bible tells us to make our calling and election sure. And I'm going to do that. And as Kendall Quoted earlier from 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. I quoted it several times last night. And I think we should go there again. Listen, if we can know that we have eternal life, that means tell me that I know if I don't too. If you're sitting here and you don't have eternal life, you can do what it takes to be saved. And you can ask yourself the question, right now, am I saved? Now we've talked about some verses. I know we've got some songs to sing. Y'all are thinking, it's 8 o'clock and he's went over. Yeah, I just went over. Let's talk about this from a Christian perspective too. Because this is what we often fail to do. You know, as Christians, we can become lost. I can walk away from this This denominational concept that once saved, always saved is permeating many Christians. Listen, if you go outside, and we talked last night about what it is to walk in the light, what it is to not walk in the light. If you have stepped outside of the light by allowing sin into your life, and maybe, you know, you've said I'm sorry, but you haven't fixed sin like repentance talks about. Maybe you need to do that this morning. Maybe you need to get a rain on your life and, and your faithfulness to God tonight. You want prayers, and you want strength, and you want encouragement. As a New Testament Christian, we want to do that. You think back to Acts chapter 8, and after those people in Samaria were converted and they were baptized, then they have to have the laying on of the hands of the apostles come to give them the Holy Spirit. And Simon the sorcerer sees this take place. And he desires, he offers 
Peter money, to have this ability. Peter has to rebuke him because of his sin for this. He says, I want you to pray to God that the thought of thine heart might be forgiven. And we could do that for you tonight, maybe. If you got sin in your life, you can fall out of grace with God. Don't we all know? Let me, let me end with this thought. Don't we know when we're not right with God? You're here tonight. You're not right with God. There is an invitation song now up here. No about the sin tonight. We forget sometimes what this whole purpose of this invitation song is. This is to give you a moment while we're singing it to contemplate and ask, ask yourself, am I saved? If you're not, what we have is time set aside right now. You come down, Kindle, myself, we'll study with you, pray with you, we'll encourage you. You need to obey the gospel. There's water right here that we can baptize you. You need to repent of sin. We'll help you with that. That's what the body of Christ is for. So let us. Let us help you. But it's up to you. You can sit there and white knuckle it. Hold on to the pew, the chair in front of you, all night long. That doesn't get you anywhere. Turning your life over to Christ. Surrendering everything. True repentance. Let your life be shaped and be molded and eternally saved. Why not? Who would? Why is it that every person in the New Testament that is saved asks the question, what can I do? What can I do? They don't have to be convinced. They don't have to be drugged to the baptistry. They want it. You want salvation. You do. Let us help you. Stand and have a seat.